You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. If you ask a doctor who gives lectures for drug companies, he will most likely say his lectures were highly educational and that they were hired for their medical expertise and speaking skills. According to former drug company sales reps, the opposite may in fact be true. The vast majority of time, any paid relationship that exists between a doctor and a drug company usually tends to the doctor writing more of that particular drug. Is it all about manipulating doctors? Are we that easy a target? Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and joining me today is Dr. Jerome Kesserer, the former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine and distinguished professor at Tufts University of Medicine. Dr. Kesserer has been referred to as the conscience of American medicine, and he's also the author of the book On the Take, How Medicine's Complicity with Big Business Can Endanger Your Health. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be with you. In your book, you talk about this concept known as being a pseudo-consultant. Sounds quite lucrative. Can you elaborate? Well, the idea of being a pseudo-consultant is that a drug company will call up a doctor or get in touch with a doctor and ask them to consult with them about a product. And so they'll invite that doctor and another, let's say, 30 or 40 of such doctors to come to a meeting, consulting meeting, and the meeting might be held in Las Vegas or Hawaii or wherever, and they will uh, go to the meeting, and rather than actually consulting on the drug, what they will do is the company will pitch the drug to the doctors, and then the doctors will go home having had a nice couple of days away, pseudo-consulting, and begin to use the drug. Or some of them will be invited to become speakers for the company. And that also will encourage them and the people in their audiences to use the drug. So that's the notion of pseudo-consulting. We call those, us younger ducks call those boondoggles. And they seem to have dried up for the most part. They do things locally in cities, but I don't know of any of my friends that are being flown to Hawaii anymore. We miss that perk or that lure. One of your other chapters, you talk about ghostwriting. It seems there's an awful lot of that going on. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that? The idea of ghostwriting is that a company hires a ghostwriter and gives the ghostwriter material to write an article about a drug or about a condition, let's say migraine or something of the sort. The ghostwriter then writes the article. The company then looks around for an author and usually a prominent author. So they call around, try to find somebody who would be interested in sending the paper in for publication under their name. Now, they didn't write it. They may edit it a little bit, but they haven't written it. So the paper is ghostwritten, and the author then submits the paper. The paper is accepted and published, and it appears that a prominent author has written it when, in fact, it's been written by a company. Yeah, some of these authors, if they truly are writing all these articles, they have no time to see patients or have dinner with their family. I mean, it's amazing how many articles come out under one doctor's name. Yes, that's true. There's another little Philip about that, which is that if you look at the conflict of interest statements of doctors at major medical meetings, which are required, they're, they're required to disclose their conflicts of interest. So if you look at them, many doctors will have 10 or 15 companies that they consult with, sometimes it's even 25. So you have to ask the question, 
What are they doing at home? What are they doing for their job? You have to wonder. They, it's a serious conflict of commitment. What do you think a thought leader is these days? Because it seems that all of the thought leaders are on the payroll. Are there any ones that are independent? I know that if you look at a, a panel for approving a new drug, most of the docs on that panel are consultants. Yeah, I'm afraid it's, it's sad. Uh, there are plenty of people around who... I believe, could be used to evaluate new drugs and evaluate new procedures who do not have financial conflicts of interest. And those are people that that should be used just for that purpose. But the companies know that they don't want to use those people. That's correct. But it's not the companies that that make the policy. It's medical organizations uh, and the FDA and the public health service. So it's those organizations are the ones who should be using non-conflicted doctors. Or if they can't find a sufficient number of non-conflicted doctors, at least they should have a majority on a panel to make clinical judgments that all doctors are going to use who don't have financial conflicts. And I don't object to having one or two people on the panel. I don't object to having people give their opinions to the panel, but not be in a voting mode if they're conflicted. But I would preserve those prestigious jobs in panels for doctors who don't have conflicts. If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and with me today is Dr. Jerome Kassira. Dr. Kassira wrote the book, On the Take, How Medicine's Complicity with Big Business Can Endanger Your Health. I know in the book you talk about the FDA and the NIH, and I was wondering if you could share the the Rizulin story a little for us. Uh, Who were the characters? As I was reading it, it it looked like I was reading a screenplay for The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. That whole story is very complicated. In essence, Rizulin was a drug that was introduced uh, in the 90s. It got on the market, and it also was being tested at the same time by the FDA. Shortly after the drug was released, some patients began to develop liver abnormalities, and there were some deaths. And at first, it was thought that perhaps the deaths were all related, and the, and the abnormalities were all related to the use of the drug in people who had already some impaired liver function. It turned out that over time, at least one patient turned out not to have any abnormality of liver function and developed severe liver failure and died. The deaths began to mount up, and it was really problematic. The English uh, took the drug off their market, I think around in 1998 or so, but it stayed on the market here in the United States. And Then in the late 90s, there was a panel that met to look at the toxicity. By that time, there were more than 40 deaths. And the panel, uh, unfortunately, was heavily conflicted. There were, as I recall, the panel had 12 people and 11 of them had financial conflicts with the company that made the drug. They recommended that the drug stay on the market. Well, it did stay on the market for another year, By that time, there were more than 60 deaths from the drug until finally the uh, company uh, was forced to take it off the market. And in the meantime, there were some really interesting things that were going on. There was a FDA member 
who was pushing hard early along to get the drug off the market. He was sanctioned and taken off the case by the FDA with a lot of pressure from the company that made the drug. As you're telling this story, I'm reminded of a story that's um, almost a month old, the Rosie Glitazone story. Have you been following that one? Yes, yes, I have. I mean, it seems eerily familiar with uh, Dr. Nissen as the proponent of trying to get it removed and others demonizing him. Right. Well, of course, the difference was that the person I was referring to in the Regilin case was an actual FDA employee. And Dr. Nissen, of course, works at the Cleveland Clinic. Do you think the FDA is also complicit? I mean, they receive a lot of money from drug companies. They get a lot of money from drug companies. It seems to me very unfortunate that that is allowed to continue. We should be paying for the evaluation of drugs by the FDA, not the drug companies. And the problem is that it does bring the the industry and the FDA closer together. That, to me, is very unfortunate. We should not be uh, in a position where the FDA could be influenced in any way by the industry. So, unfortunately, that's how it is now, and we're, we're kind of stuck with that. We've covered a bunch of groups that are on the take. Is it safe to say that, thank God, the oncologists haven't been affected? Oh, no, no. The oncologists have been affected, too. And, and there it's a kind of a different matter. Clinical oncology is almost unique in, in terms of its practice. Uh, there's only one other group, really, that gives drugs the way the oncologists do, and that is the kidney doctors. Kidney doctors inject patients with a drug called epigen, and when you inject the drug, you can actually buy it from the distributor and sell it back to the patient or the insurance company. And that is the case also for oncology. So what happens is an oncologist will select a chemotherapeutic agent that they're going to give uh, intravenously or whatever in one of the parenteral ways and will buy the drug and then mark it up. Now, the problem is that the markup of different drugs is different. So some drugs, the markup is better, and even though those drugs may not be the best drug for the patient, the markup is better. So there's an inducement for the oncologist to use the better, profitable, less efficacious drug. How could that be? They, they're all about saving lives. If you talk to some oncologists, they will say that it's the hidden secret of oncology. One of them told me, they used the expression that chemo is their cardiac cath, referring to the kind of profitability that cardiologists get from doing cardiac caths. Well, didn't Medicare make some changes a few years ago? It really hasn't solved the problem completely. It's partially solved the problem, but not altogether. How are they getting around that loophole and still making money off of chemo? Well, there still is a margin to be made on on these drugs. They're not only charging for the drugs, but also charging for the office visits. Now, the fact is that we have to be sympathetic to the oncologists. Oncologists treat the sickest patients, and they see patients die in front of them all the time, despite the hardest jobs they can possibly do to cure them and keep them alive. So I feel for them. And, you know, there's a lot of them that burn out after a while because they they see this awful stuff. So, uh, yes, we should pay them appropriately for what they do. And unless we do that, 
then they're going to try to game the system. It's just unfortunate that they're gaining the system is not acting in the best interest of their patient. And that is some pretty scary stuff. It is scary stuff. How often that happens is something we just don't know. I love the story that you talk about where the urologists were actually getting free samples from the drug companies and then turning around and billing insurance. Can you tell me that one? It's a great one. Well, all I can say about it is they were crazy to do that because it's fundamentally illegal. They were getting free samples and then selling them. And that's simply not legal. And they got caught for it. And some of them paid hefty fines as a consequence of it. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I've enjoyed it immensely. My guest has been Dr. Jerome Kassirer, author of the book On the Take, How Medicine's Complicity with Big Business Can Endanger Your Health. You've been listening to The Business of Medicine on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.